Start recording. Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Ever since I read Atlas Shrugged, I've been intrigued by the idea of the producers getting fed up with being regulated and being built out of their money. And I recently read an article about something similar taking place in Norway. So I've asked the author of the article on the show. He is the managing editor for fee.org. That's the foundation for economic education. And he's had articles in time magazine, the wall street journal and other prominent publications. John Miltimore, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. I'm doing great. So tell us, what is going on in Norway? You say the wealthy are leaving. Uh, is this a, a mass exodus? And what is the impact on the Norwegian economy? I wouldn't say it's a mass exodus. What I'd say is it's it's a, a mass exodus of the super wealthy. <laughs> um, and it, so, so what you have here is a small number of people that in 2022 decided they were they were going to leave. Um, it was, you know, several dozen people, upwards of 30 people um, that were billionaires and, you know, hundreds of millions, you know, that they had. And they said, OK, goodbye. And, and, and if you look, you know, I first read about this, I think, in The Guardian um, and The Guardian had the story and, and they noted this is more people, you know, super wealthy people who left Norway than the, the 13 previous years combined. Think about that. Like, like just in 2022, more in that single year than 13 years combined. Um, and, and so, you know, like to me, I'm curious, like, OK, how did this happen? Um, and it's not a big mystery, you know, why these people decided to, to, to leave. Um, Norway is one of those few countries that still has a, a wealth tax. Um, you know, like Americans are pretty comfortable with the idea of an income tax, right? Like we might not like it, but we, we, we understand it. If you go to work, like some of your income is going to be taxed. Um, you know, usually the more you make, the more you're going to pay on that tax. Um, now, in in Norway and these other countries, uh, again, there's a handful. Spain's another one. I forget the others in Europe, but they they're taxing wealth. That means that just just for the having you know the fortune of living in their country, they're going to take some of your wealth that is just sitting there. Um, you, you might not even be working, but you have a certain amount of money, and they're just going to tax your wealth. And what Norway did is they've had this tax for years, but they increased it. Um, they increased it to 1.1%, uh, I think. Um, and people are like, wow, that's not a whole lot, right? Like a, a wealth tax, we're only talking about 1%. Well, don't forget that's year after year. Every year you're gonna be paying a percent of your total wealth. And uh, I looked at just one of these uh, individuals who has you know, a name that's a Norwegian name. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it because I'm gonna mangle <laughs> it. Uh, you know, but he was he's a, a fishing magnet, made billions, you know, in 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 the, the fishing industry and then kind of diversified and other stuff. And, and he just announced I'm taking my, me and my capital to, to Switzerland. Um, his name, I'll, maybe I will try it. Hans Jirka. Uh, Jirka is, is the last name. It's spelled R-O-K-K-E. I did some, you know, pronunciations listening to it to try to, you know, I still probably mangled it, but he was just one of these guys. I said, I'm not going to you know sit around here and, and get, get taxed um, and have my income taken. And he, and it was an open letter he published and he didn't say it quite that plainly. Um, but, but that's, you know, when you get down to it, that's the situation a bunch of people in Norway, you know, really wealthy people said, yeah, I'm not going to just stand here and let you take the wealth that I've earned. What is the rationale 
furthest wealth tax? Because if I'm hearing you correctly, a wealth tax isn't based on how much money you have coming in or, uh, you know, maybe for money that you've inherited and they take it like in the estate tax or from a sale or anything like that. You're just talking basically about taxing capital, right? Like the, the savings somebody has, if you're worth X amount of money and that money is somewhere, they're going to take a percentage of it, right? That That is what they're doing, correct? And what is their justification for it? Like, what's the reason that, how do they sell this to the public? Well, uh, first, yeah, that, that is basically it. They're going to look at your house. They're going to look at your total net worth and say, okay, you owe us this. Um, and the justification is, well, the, the state wants more money, right? <laughs> um, we, they have, they have all these programs. We need to fund these programs. Um, we got to try to get revenue every way we can income tax, as you say, the estate tax, we have all these, you know, sales tax, all these different ways that we're going to collect money. Um, and I think the appeal of the wealth tax is, is kind of obvious. Like, you know, again, there's a lot of people in our country, in the United States, at least Brian, I forget where you're based out of, right? Are you, uh, Connecticut. Well? Connecticut. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, Elizabeth Warren is one of them and, and, and there's others, um, who are really, you know, high on, you know, aggressively pushing you know, a, a wealth tax. And the appeal is you have some people that they have too much money, right? They they have so much, well, you, you have to share that with others who are less fortunate. And uh, so you can see it, 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 there's a great populist appeal. Um, you know, people, um, you know, people might hate taxes, but, you know, they don't mind it so much when it falls on other people. And and that's sort of like, well, they get an increase the taxes on those millionaires and billionaires. They have too much anyway. And I think there's, you know, there's a couple lessons to learn from that. I think one is there's the political appeal of that. We see it in our politics all the time. It's sort of like this class warfare, right? Like like the, the, the politics are very appealing. We, you know, I have friends, you probably have friends that that think you know like oh you're just for the rich guy we need to support the little guy we need to support the little guy who they're always you know after um and things like this have great political appeal with them they show like oh joe, joe biden um is really fighting for us i saw a speech he gave just the other day he was you know railing how, how millionaires and billionaires just aren't paying their their fair share and so things like a wealth tax are really you know a, appealing politically to people want to they want to push that now, I think you have to look at how a wealth tax actually works. And, you know, as I talked about in this article, and, and The Guardian pointed this out as well, um, the wealth tax that Norway passed is now collecting about 40% less revenue because um, you had all these people that say, to hell with this. I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and let you just take my money. I'm going to go to Switzerland or I'm going to go, you know, to the United States or I'm going I'm to go, you know, wherever it is. There's all kinds of countries. Um, people can go to. And, and and that's a reality. Capital has never been more mobile, right? Like it's so easy now to just say, no, we're, you know, I'm, I'm going to move and I'm going to move my capital. I'm going to take it with me. Um, and, and that's, that's a wonderful thing for people that like a wealth tax. It's not wonderful, right? They, they want, they want that money and they get very frustrated when people just, just take it with them. But when it comes down, when the, when the rubber hits the road, that's what you have to look at. Norway is collecting less revenue now, a lot less revenue with their wealth tax have increased. And, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners probably are, are familiar with like the Laffer curve. I was right? just going to ask you about that. You preempted my question. 
Yeah, like like so the La the Laffer curve, which actually goes way back before Art Laffer, you know, who was an economist in, in the Reagan administration. You can you we have an article on fee about this. It actually originated, I think, with a Islamic economist from like the 13th century or something like that. And and it just shows um there there's a, a, a sort of middle area where you, where the state can collect the most money. But if if you're too low, obviously if you're at a tax rate at zero, you're not going to collect any revenue. But if you go far too too far in the other direction, you're going to collect. If, if you have 100% tax, you're also going to collect zero revenue in the end because you're not going to produce anything. There's no incentive to produce, and and this is why we see it. Um, there is that sweet spot where you know where all the people that are supportive of uh, you know taxes like this say you where you can collect the optimal amount of revenue. Um, but if you go past that, you you know you can reach this point in, in Norway seeing this where you you increase taxes you're going to collect re less revenue because it's going to you know cause people to to leave or to not to, to not work or um and to do these things and so this is a great example of backfire economics you you increase a tax expecting more revenue and you end up with you know a lot less revenue uh, hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars you know le less revenue for Norway each year See, when it comes to the Laffer curve, I agree with the economics of it. You know, if you raise the price too much of anything and people are going to buy less of it. And if you, know, if you raise the, the taxes too high, people are going to work less because they don't want to have to keep expending their effort for somebody else. But I, my issue with the Laffer curve, we, we had a, a gubernatorial candidate who was making the argument about based on the Laffer curve about setting the tax rate right to maximize revenues. But from my perspective, I don't want the state maximizing revenues, right? I, I want revenues to be as low as possible, especially when you're talking about, you know, taxation, which is, you know, compulsory. But I want back to Norway for a, a, a second. Norway takes in a lot of revenue from oil, correct? Um, I all kinds of streams. I, I couldn't tell you how much they get from oil, but I but I know that they have. It's a significant amount because it, it just seems to me like government is insatiable, right? They, they, no matter how many revenue streams they get, they're always going to want more. And it, is that what's happening in Norway that there's just a, a appetite for more and more government services on the part of the people who aren't paying the bills And the best way to get those services is to tax the people who are paying the bills. Is that what's going on there? Yeah, and I would say it's not just Norway. I think if you look at most Western countries, that's the case. You, you can certainly see it here in the United States for what, $32 trillion in debt right now, right? Um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons this story is so important. There, there's this fiction, you know, we go back and forth, you know, you have Republicans and, and Democrats that argue about this, you know, over and over and over, where Republicans say, you know, oh, we, we just have to, you know, reduce spending, um, and, and Democrats say, no, we just need to increase taxes more. Like we all agree that the debt's bad, but you know, nobody can really agree. Um, I think we need to realize that the, this fiction that you can just squeeze more money out of the wealthy, it, it, it's not going to happen. Okay. Um, people are not going to, to sit there and let their wealth be taxed. People are not going to, um, you know, like if, if you increase your income tax, like to 60, 70%, it, it, it's not going to do what people think. We And this is where Republicans and Democrats both need to get this. It's not just about cutting taxes, okay? Republicans are really all about, they love tax cuts. 
right? They're, they're, they're always going to, we've seen it in the last, you know, 25, 30 years, like a lot of push, not a lot of push for spending cuts, right? You, 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 you need to do both. Well, and when they're and, out and of office, goes, then they push for the spending cuts. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. And but but going back to to the Laffer thing and your point about maxim, maximizing revenue, I I agree. I, I like Milton Friedman's approach. To this in 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 Friedman said if if you pass a, a tax cut and and revenue goes up, you haven't cut taxes enough. Mm-hmm. And and the point there is yes, like like taxes. Um, you you want to tax enough where where revenues go down, and you want spending to go down with it. And we were, you know, so many countries are just heading in this other direction. Um, United States being one of them. The the we're, we're now entering this this era where we have just trillion dollar deficits every year, and we kind of seem to think that is just cool, right? Like we we can we can manage this. Um, long term, we're not going to manage this, and in long term, this situation I think is is um, pretty serious. Um, and there's they, we will reach a point. Um, when we're not going to be able to, to, you know, maximize, you know, bring in more revenue, it's going to be more and more money printing. Um, and this inflation we're seeing now, um, you know, like, I, I think there is this belief like, oh, this is just a, just a blip from COVID where we printed, printed, you know, three and a half trillion dollars in 18 months, it, you know, it's going to go away. I don't think that's going to be the case. We've seen, we're, we're seeing in, inflation taper, but I think inflation will be just part of an, an ongoing issue in our future because we don't have any way to control spending. So has there been any that you're aware of historical analogies to what's happening in Norway where people in a given country just got fed up and began leaving? I mean, I, I would I would imagine people were leaving communist countries. Obviously, we see them coming over in inner tubes from Cuba, but the countries, they're not they don't really let their people just leave. So I'm talking about where the people basically had freedom of movement and just decided to leave countries. Are, are you aware of any historically? I I think if you look most of Europe, right, like <laughs> if you look at how the United States became a country, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Religious persecution was part of that. We, you know, and I like like that was part of it. But people just wanted more opportunity, and and they, you know, Europe, you, you know, was a lot harder um, to succeed. So they, you hadn't, uh, you know, just just wave after wave of after wave of immigrants who came to America for more opportunity. The problem is now, you know, like like when people say that America was the last frontier, it was you know, like that's kind of where we're at, and and now America is becoming what Europe was. This this place where um, it's it's not growing where it feels like it's slowly dying, where the administrative state is is constantly um, taking more and more and more. Um, and now there's not some other place we can go to unless Elon Musk is right. We can colonize Mars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like in God willing, like, like, that'd be great. Um, you know, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, but but yeah, that's sort of the nature of, of human history. Um, the state grows and starts taking more and more and um, and humans, you know, go to other areas where they can, you know, because there is a desire for freedom, right? Like people, people don't like it uh, when, when they're being oppressed, where they can't practice their religion or where, you know, the state's just taking too much from them. Um, but now, you know, the United States isn't the bastion of freedom it once was, right? I'm not saying that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not the USSR, no. we're not East Germany, it's nothing like that. Um, but um, we, we, we have some serious problems here and it, it starts with, with, with bad economics 
in this idea that you can just, you know, um, you can build a, a, a culture that's built on confiscation, right? That's built on plunder. And we're gonna we're gonna plunder the we're gonna plunder those who produce in society and take more and more from them um, and and give it to others and spend it in all these other ways and things will be just fine. Um, that's not a that's not a culture that will ultimately produce a, a healthy, prosperous society. Other than the debt and inflation, which you mentioned, what policies in America right now do you think are similar to those that are causing the problems in Norway. We don't have a wealth tax, at least not that I'm aware of, but certainly we have policies over here that are pushing us in that direction, right? So what what are some of those policies? Uh, and partly, I, I don't know enough about European policies or Norway policies, policies to say what's, what's similar. Um, you know, I, I do think a lot of it, you know, just just speaking very broadly, the the bureaucracy is 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 growing in 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 America at a very you know unhealthy clip, um, and it, it, it's bureaucracy that's largely you know I'll, I'll go off on a tangent a little bit like there's economic costs from that but there's there's other costs too, and we're seeing it now where like we're you know bureaucracies meddling in things they were never supposed to to meddle with, um, we're seeing bureaucracies that are kind of on on you know out of control, um, they're now like. I, I'm old enough to remember when the, the Department of Homeland Security was created, right? Um, and it was like one of those. I remember at the time, like, well, this isn't good. Like, I, I what, what, what are they? You know, it's in the wake of 9/11, and we're we're kind of, um, you know, just passing everything. It's a war on terror. The whole Department of Homeland Security looked a little fishy to me, but it was passed. Well, now you have the, you know, it's DHS that that. All of these speech regulations are being cited. The, the, the Defense of Homeland Security Act. Okay, um, all these things are we're fighting to preserve democracy here, and and that means that we're going to actually start to you know actively work with with companies to decide what can be said publicly and what can't, what undermines democracy, what doesn't. Um, if you look, there's no mention of free speech anywhere in that act. Not not one mention of it. But but they assumed the authority to start doing that. And that's what we've seen in recent years. I think it started in probably 2018. Um, the bureaucracy just said, well, it's our job to kind of decide to fight misinformation and disinformation and malinformation, which is, that's one that hasn't gotten nearly enough, enough attention. Malinformation is it, where, well, they said something that's true, but it's going to... It, end up with a result we don't like right like like what they what they might have said about you know masks or vaccines might be technically true but it's going to discourage people from using masks or vaccines that's malinformation we needed to talk about how to how to stop that and i know that's kind of a tangent from where we were but th this is all stuff that is kind of just been recently um unveiled with like like with the, the purchase of of Twitter and the Twitter files and all that, you see you have bureaucracies that are kind of, like I said, out of control, doing things they were never, you know, legally authorized to do even. And and a federal judge, you know, let's just probably heard it, like he came and just just swatted them down for this and said, no, you, you can't do that. But we'll see if the bureaucracies actually listen. Like, do you think, and, and the Biden administration has already appealed that ruling. Um, and I, I assume most people know that the background of that, a couple of states, I think it was Louisiana, Louisiana, Mississippi sued on that front and said, you can't, you can't use companies, the federal government can't basically outsource, outsource censorship to, to private companies, which is what it's been doing. So 
you know, like all of that, what I think it's it's just one of the most overlooked problems in America today. We have this massive, you know, bureaucratic state and not really held accountable. So in your view, what are the chances that in America we could have a brain drain or what are the chances that in America Atlas will shrug? Is this a realistic possibility that that's something I mean, I don't think it would happen on a you know, where everybody just stops working, but it, it seems to me it could happen to a point where it was a, a problem. What do you think the chances of that happening if it's not already happening? Yeah, no, I, I think it already has happened to some extent, um, you know, where, where people just say, like, like, let's face it, and this can happen in different forms. A lot of people don't work today because it's simply easier not to work. And um, I, I, that always to me, uh, I think this is something that, se that separates like, uh, I'll, I'll just say like, you know, regular Americans or capitalists and, and Marxists. Mar Marxists look at, at, at work as bad. It's all exploitation, right? You're being exploited. Um, that, that's why we work. I, I always looked at work as good. Like, like work has improved who I am as a human being. It's made me a better person. I've, I've, I've taken from jobs more than just a salary. I've, I've learned how to interact with others. I've learned all these soft skills about, you know, working with people. Um, work has improved me. But I, again, I think you do have a lot of people that that, that say, you know, work's just exploitive. Um, it's bad. So, you know, if people don't want to work, you know, that's okay. I don't I don't look at that as good. I, I, I think, you know, work is something that sharpens human beings and, and makes us better. And I think it's tragic today that we, we see like the, the labor participation rate, you know, uh, no, it, it increased a lot, you know, when back in the, when women hit the workforce. But if you look at the recent decades, it's just been a slow, steady slide. So that's one way, you know, people can shrug. I, I think you do see, you know, and this is probably more to, to your question. I, I think what we're seeing now is it, it's happening between states. We're, we're, we're seeing people fleeing California, fleeing Illinois, fleeing New York and, and you know, some of these other states. And it's very, I wrote an article on this a few months ago, actually. If you look at the IRS data, the people leaving these states are the wealth creators. They are the entrepreneurs. And, and you know, they're, they're, the, they're the people that are, you know, have, have the, the highest incomes. And they've reached a point that says, I don't want to live in California anymore. Like, I'm tired of being taken advantage of. I'm tired of, you know, paying more and more in, in taxes. Um, I'm tired of like, like there's the tax component. There's also the, the part of Atlas Shrug we forget societies become corrosive when they become, when plunder becomes, you know, normal. And we're seeing that in a lot of these, if you look, the uh, parts of these states at least um, are really falling apart. Um, you, you have a lot of violent crime um, and you have, you know, the, the schools are in shambles. Um, and I think people with the means are, um, and again, IRS data supports it. It's very, it's very, you know, clear. They're they're going to places like Texas. They're going to places like Florida. So I, I think, you know, in the United States, we're we're not going to see tons of Americans in the near future to say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Canada or the UK. Let, let, let's face it, other other countries have you know pretty similar policies. But I think you will see it from a, a people voting with their feet to leave you know, states and, and municipalities that have insane policies and confiscatory policies um, that make it really hard hard to succeed because the state's intervening in, in your life so much as it's hard to improve your situation. 
in your article, you took an interesting spin or an interesting turn. I don't want to say spin that I, I rather enjoyed it, you talked about the Nobel Prize winning economist, Robert Lucas. Can you tell us, well, who was Robert Lucas? What is the Lucas critique and how is it relevant to this discussion? Yeah, Lucas is a guy, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know a ton about him. You know, I his name had been familiar to me for years. Um, but, you know, Peter Jacobson, an economist that uh, uh, writes for Fiat, just, just did a piece on him recently. Lucas, you know, is a, a University of Chicago, you know, economist. And the um, uh, the Chicago school is kind of like the legendary school, right? Um, and and he passed recently, and, and, and Peter wrote a very nice article about him. And it, it occurred to me, the Lucas critique really is 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 part of, it connected really well with, with what was happening in, in Norway. And the Lucas critique said, look, you know, human action, all of it happens at the individual level, right? Um, and we, we do all these, my, these, these macroeconomic models and, and we, we draw up these plans and, and we assume it's going to do this and we assume this is going to happen. We, we, we saw a lot of this in, in, with COVID, right? We had all these vast assumptions, these, 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 modeling, these models that we assumed were going to happen. Well, the models were horribly wrong with COVID and, and the macroeconomics were, were horribly wrong with Norway. Because it, it said, oh, we're going to increase revenue by 30% or whatever it was. And in fact, it did the exact opposite. It led to a collapse in revenue. And the Lucas critique at it just says, you, you can't assume people are going to do what you expect. Because when you change policy, people will change behavior. Okay? Sure. And, and, and that's a very simple idea. But he won a Nobel Prize for, for, you know, for, for really showing, and not just presenting the idea, but 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 showing how it applies to our everyday life, and, and and I think that to me is the the coolest part of economics. Is is you know a lot of people hear economics and, and they think things that don't apply at all, like stock markets, or they think you know graphs and charts and supply and demand charts, and and, and that's part of it. But the cool part of economics to me has always been human action, and it, it is that 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 people make choices, and it, it, you know look at the word economize. We do it in our lives all the time. We 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 look at it and say, well, if if I if I'm going to do this, I can't do that, and I you know a simple thing like opportunity cost, and and all and the way that that economics ap applies at the micro level, I, I've always been fascinated by and interested by it. Um, we do it all the time. Like I, I we we plan our day without thinking. Like during the middle of my day, I'll, I'll go and uh, I'll, I'll make lunch and empty the dishwasher, and I, I do three or four tasks at once at once when I'm out there for 15 minutes. And it's saying like I, I could do all these things individually, but you're you're kind of doing them all at once in, in, in a way that why do I do that? Because time is very important. It's a resource like anything else. And you want to maximize time. You want to maximize all these different things. And most of us do this subconsciously. Right. Like we don't really think about it. I I, I never really think about it, but you realize it. Um, you know, I, I think at least successful people are really good about maximizing their time and, and, and maximizing their resources. And, and so then you apply that to, to a, a macro level. And to me, it was, it was very arrogant to think, oh, we're just going to crank up our, our tax on wealth and get a bunch more money. It's going to be great. And never assume that people might be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, sit there and have my feathers plucked and, 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 and not, not do anything about it. Um, and, and so I, I think anybody listening, like, like, think about that. 
it's one of the basics of economics. Don't think about the, when you hear of a policy, don't just think what the policies intend to do. Think about all the other things that, that it might do that we don't, we, we can't even think about. And I think once you approach life that way, you start to realize like, oh, humans are complex. Systems are complex. And it, it's not this simple little formula that we can just kind of plan it and make it do what we want. Um, it, it, when you do that, when you plan societies like that, you have all kinds of things that crop up and you often end up making matters worse. And, and I, you know, there, there's a, a great, you know, Chinese philosopher that was writing about this 2,500 years ago. And he was, he was articulating the idea. He didn't call it this, but the idea of spontaneous order. And it's like, if we just get out of people's way, people can actually do a lot more than we give them credit for. Right. Like if we just let people, um, let them seek on their own, let them thrive on their own. Um, but the moment you start to plan lives for other people, I, I think all, all kinds of things happen. And a lot of it is, is, is negative. Um, just a, another quick example, you know, like go, go back to the war on poverty, something, you know, Lyndon Johnson waged all these years ago. If you look, you can pull up the charts. Poverty in the U.S. was just declining rapidly. And then we declared war on poverty. And what happened? <laughs> it skids. Poverty's going nowhere now. Like, like it's barely budged in the four or five decades, you know, the five, five, six decades. We're getting it's getting further now. Since we passed this policy, right? Since and we've only started spending more and more on it. Trillions of dollars thinking we're gonna we're gonna conquer poverty if we just spend a little bit more. And it hasn't it it, it hasn't worked, but nobody wants to admit that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's very arrogant to, to think like, okay, if we just get the right policies, we can create Eden on Earth where everybody has enough. Um, that's not the way humans are. And, and you know, like it, it, it's, I, I think um, even those who are good intentioned, like, like really they look and say, I just want, you know, we need to use government more effectively so people have more. They're not looking at all the unintended consequences in, 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 in the lives you're many times you're ruining by, 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 you know, making people to, to quote what Benjamin Franklin said years ago, making them easy in their poverty. Right. Um, you don't want people comfortable in their poverty. You, you want them trying to succeed and better themselves and improve themselves. And that's not all through material well-being or anything. I don't want to imply that it is. Um, it's but certainly again, a large is, part of it, right? <laughs> I, I think it's a big, I think it is a big part. Um, you know, but I, I, I think there is, there, there's also, I, I think, um, I don't remember if it was Thoreau that said this, used the phrase poverty of the mind. Um, I, I think we do suffer from that a lot. And, and like, you know, materially Americans today have, you know, even do we have inequality? Sure. But we have so much. Right. But I, I do see today like this poverty of the mind, like people, they don't appreciate what they have. Um, and, you know, like I, I, I think most of us are in some ways we have too much, you know, like like in, in some senses, you know, in one sense, at least people would say we have conquered poverty. People today, they don't starve in America. Like our biggest problem is is obesity. Right. Yeah. Like in the, the the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be obese. You mentioned unintended consequences, and there's a lot of the different definitions of economics, but one of my favorite is the study of the unintended consequences of human behavior. And I read a story, and I don't know, it might be apocryphal, but I still, I like the story because it illustrates the point. And it's that there was this town and they had a problem with snakes. There were a lot, too many snakes. So they made a law and they said, well, if you will kill the snakes and turn the snakes in, you, you know, we'll remunerate you for them. And they thought, what a great idea. This will get rid of the snakes. But what actually happened was people started breeding snakes 
because now they know that they can make money from selling the snakes to the, the local authorities. And it's just that you never know when you enact these policies, how people are going to respond to them. And it seems like they have a knack, the, the, the government that is for and getting the exact opposite often of what they actually want and what they want to achieve. I mean, Norway, when they, you know, passed the wealth tax, wealth tax, they're not trying to get people to leave. They, they want to raise more money. Instead, they get less money. What policies do you think in America that there's a realistic chance of, of passing in the near future would help stem this dynamic that we have of the ever growing government. That's oh, basically, I mean, it's a wealth killer really. Right. And it's a happiness killer. You talked about well-being. What can we do in, in the near term, at least that could help with this, if anything? Yeah. No, just to go back a minute, what you're describing, the, the Cobra effect, it's called. Right. Oh, OK. And I think it, I, I think it was uh, the, the, the British, you know, empire. They were they were in India. And, and I, I think it's a true story. Um, I did try to verify that. I, I looked enough to to say I, I do think it's real. Um, and yeah, they had this bounty on Cobras. And and you know it was working for a little while, but you know like like they thought because like oh look at all we're getting we're getting all these bounties, and then they realized what was going. People were 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 um, you know breeding cobras, but you you left out the best part of the story. So afterwards they figure out oh people are, are breeding cobras, um, turning in bounties, and they're they're getting you know they 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 end the bounty. And guess what happens when they end the bounty? People release the cobras into the. Into so the you have more cobra, you have more cobras than ever. Yeah, like like they, well, we don't need these anymore, and they release them, um, or you know, some I'm sure were just killed. Um, but but yeah, like I, I think your point is it's a great one on, on incentives, and and this is something people don't think about. You know, think about the the incentive of the policy you're passing, um, not what you want, not what you hope it does. Think about what the the incentive it's actually creating. Um, and you know, I I'll answer your question in, in a minute about policies, um, but like I, I think we're seeing this right now. I, I I wrote some articles on this. Is is the shoplifting stuff like the way um, California in particular, but it's not just California. I saw as well like um, companies in, in other parts of of the U.S. They're they're discouraging people from stopping shoplifters, and. Um, I think what they're they, they don't want confrontations. They don't like in California. They're actually trying to pass a law that would make it illegal for employers to tell employees to stop or confront shoplifters. And I, I think the danger is you are creating this incentive for more shoplifting. Right? What's going to happen when people realize they can walk into stores, take stuff, and not be stopped or not you know um, or, or even questioned? Like like to me like like think about the incentive of that. Now I know what people are saying when they, when when they're when they're 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 saying oh we just we we don't want to have violent confrontations okay like that's why we're doing this we don't want employees that aren't security guards trying to um to stop people but but think about what's going to happen you're going to um you're going to create more shoplifting um and it's already a huge problem in in, in some you know, we've seen companies like Walgreens just leaving um shutting down in San Francisco and um, they're not the only ones that are just saying, no, to heck with this. We're, I'm not going to, you know, we, we can't make it when people um, are just coming and taking stuff. Um, as far as policies in the U.S. go, I, I, I don't think we, we should be thinking about, oh, what policy we can pass to, to, to fix things. Um, 
policy does matter and there the, you know like there are you know but i i think what we need more is is a shift in mindset okay and the shift in mindset is is that we, we need to stop thinking about government as a force that can improve our lives and um th this is something that infects both republicans and democrats um they they really think okay how can we use government to 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 make the lives better for people and um i i i think if we approach these problems with that mindset um things are only going to continue on on the on the trajectory they are i think we need to to go back and remember like 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 view view government the way the founding fathers did um and 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 most americans did for for most of american history that government is really a necessary evil um now i know i i have some you know anarchist friends who say no it's it's not necessary at all it's just an evil but i I'll, i'm a minarchist i'll say i'll say it's a necessary evil because I do, I do think there is a role that government needs to play in any sort of functioning society um because people do aggress against one, one another you need government to kind of settle those disputes yeah um but it, you know th this uh, for for most of american history like like government if you ask people the purpose of government, you got a pretty clear, it's to protect our life, liberty, and property. That's why we have it. Somewhere in the 20th century, it became accepted that the purpose of government is to provide for people. Like, you know, I, I ask this question sometimes to, to you know, progressive friends to kind of just get their own thoughts going. Like, what, what do you think the purpose of government government is? And and they will they will say, like, like, oh, it's to provide for the people. Well, no, that, that that whole mindset is wrong. But but that is a very I, I bet you if you polled Americans, a, a close to a, a majority would, would answer to provide for the people. Um, what what the people don't realize is to provide for the people, you have to you have to confiscate from someone else to do that. Yeah. And you're building a culture based on looting, of taking from one person to to give to someone else to provide for others. Um, and it, government doesn't do. Uh, let's be honest, government doesn't do these things well. It, the only thing it can actually do well, I think, is wage war. Um, and and it, it, it's one of the things that we don't want government doing at all. But, you know, like this is, if you look at, you know, the, why the, the 20th century was so bloody, the bloodiest century in human history, it was because of this mindset, I think, that, that people looked at government as, as a powerful uh, a force for good and, and, you know, one that was going to, you know, usher in a better culture you know for the german people or one that could build a workers utopia in the soviet union all those mindsets need need to go and we need to look at look at government as a pernicious you know evil force that should be limited in in every way and until we go back and in in americans kind of start to see like oh yeah government's bad um you know like it's doing a it, it's making it's making our lives worse um we're not gonna we're not gonna fix any of these issues so the lesson for today, government sucks. Here, here. And I, it's a simple <laughs> argument, but it, it's, it's easy. I mean, if you look around at like, like at the world today, I, I think there's so much evidence for it. The problem is the government is very good. So much of what it does, it's, it's done to justify itself, right. To make yeah. itself like look important and, 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 and politicians are very good at it. The bureaucrats are very good at it. Um, you know, but I think COVID is, is a great example, right? Like, like look, for, for the last century, we didn't try all that lockdown stuff. People said, oh, oh it'd be a disaster. We've reached a point where like, yeah, let's, let's lock everything down. Like this this makes sense. And we saw what it caused and and, and it was a, a disaster. But I, I think that was one of the lessons to glean from the, this you know COVID-19 pandemic 
is the faith in government is really, really high, dangerously high. Yeah, and could have devastating repercussions. So, John, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, you know, all of our content on fee.org, like we publish there every day. Um, I, I just think we produce great content. So, so check that out. I also have a, uh, um, a, a Substack myself and I publish there every day. It's called The Take, um, uh, probably JJ Milt, I think, you know, uh, you can find it that way. But uh, it, maybe, maybe I'll send you a link you can drop in the chat or something afterwards. Okay. But, uh, I, I, Substack is great. And it's just one of those places you don't have to worry about being censored on Substack. Like um, it was, it, that's kind of one of the reasons I started it. You know, not that I get censored at fee, but all of the social media, um, you know, platforms for a while there, there were everything you said, you had to worry about it. Um, but, you know, so to me, like it, for, for people not on Substack, check it out. You can just, you know, receive content from your favorite authors in your email, whether they publish every week or, or once a day. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. For now, this is Michael Leibowitz, the Rational Egoist, signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.